Hi, my name is J.N. Campbell, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Science. Uh, I've got a special treat for everyone today for our monthly podcast, uh, where we look at the history of science, science, and all kinds of other topics. And I've got a a topic today that really is going to intersect uh, as a nexus, if you will, with many different topics, and I think our listeners today will find this uh, very interesting. My guest is a professor, Michael Wintrobe, and he is a professor of the Department of Rhetoric at the University of California, Berkeley. And welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Wintrobe. Well, uh, I'm very happy to be here, Nathan. Well, great. Well, thanks, thanks, thanks for being with us today, Michael. And uh, I want to sort of begin. Uh, by talking about what you've got going on uh, with this brand new book. Uh, but first, before we sort of delve into that, uh, I'd like for you to, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? I'm a cultural historian of science. I'm interested in the contact of Europeans with the rest of the world in the 16th and the 17th centuries and trying to kind of figure out what happened when people uh, uh, from different cultures and competencies and classes come into contact with one another and and how they go about trying to communicate and how those forms of communication end in creating new forms of knowledge, new forms of practice, new kinds of techniques, uh, you know, how new knowledge is made. That's kind of basically what I do. Um, I'm trained as an historian, um, though I also have degrees in sociology and political science. And... uh, and uh, before teaching in the rhetoric department, um, I was in a history department for seven years. So there you go. Excellent. Well, this, uh, this background of yours really dovetails nicely with this book, uh, your new one called The Voyage of Thought, Navigating Knowledge Across the 16th Century World, uh, which is re- just recently out in August uh, by Cambridge University Press. Now, this is, this is kind of a... A, a second book, a follow-up in some ways, uh, to your first book from 2006, A Savage Mirror, Power, Identity, and Knowledge in Early Modern France. France is really a particular region that you're quite interested in. And and how did that come to be? Uh, well, I married a French woman. <laughs> that's, a, that's a start. Um, no, you know, I found a footnote um, in, on the bottom of a page of a very obscure text that related a story about these Brazilian Indians called Tupinamba who were kidnapped uh, from uh, the region around Rio de Janeiro and brought to France in the middle of the 16th century. And I was fascinated by this idea, you know, why would, you know, these, these French people go to Brazil or what was to become Brazil and kidnap all these, these, these natives, these cannibals, and bring them back to France and build a village for them that looked just like a Brazilian village and then have 250 naked sailors who apparently could speak the Tupinamba language join them. Um, I found that kind of intriguing. So I spent, uh, I spent a lot of years writing a book about a festival that, you know, this, 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 uh, what was called a tableau vivant was constructed for. The Tableau Vivant is the Brazilian village. And uh, so basically I wrote 300 pages and spent 10 years of my life studying three days um, in France, in northern France. And uh, that led me into lots of different areas, uh, the, the creation of cabinets of curiosity, the contact with other worlds, uh, the writing of poetry, um, the making of art, um, etc. And that kind of segued into this, this new work that I'm doing right now on these, these Dieppois uh, sailors 
from northern France who sailed to Sumatra in the early 16th century. So it, it's an interesting idea, the, the, the Savage Mirror, because people may not realize that cross-cultural contact took place in this sort of way on the western side, or the, in Western Europe, on the eastern side of the Atlantic. Usually we associate that kind of contact of the other being brought in much later. But interesting that it happened, what, mid-16th century? 1550, right? October 3rd. There you go, right in the middle. Right in the middle. And, exactly. you know, they were using this uh, as a, a way of, well, as part of a, what's called a royal entry festival. It's a, it's a civic ritual uh, whereby a city greets the king um, or basically gives a gift to the monarch of the most elaborate possible um, ceremony they could construct as a way of getting on his, in his good graces. And uh, in doing this, they were in some sense telling the king how he should be. It was called a, a speculum principis, a mirror of princes. So in showing uh, the king, Henry II, Henri II, uh, this, this tableau vivant, this living display of Brazilians, they were trying to show the king what kind of king he should be. Um, and, you know, the kind of king they wanted him to be was one who would support colonial ventures to the New World. Um, but also I was trying to construct a, a larger kind of notion of how these, these Brazilians fit into the, the festival itself. Because what one discovers when you look at this, this really weird spectacle is they were, the Brazilians were just one part of a much more elaborate narrative, uh, which took the king basically, I mean, the king, you know, followed this narrative from Brazil to the Elysian fields of the terrestrial paradise where he was greeted by his, uh, uh, somebody representing his father, who was the father also, not just of Henry II, but of the arts and of the sciences and literature. And so they were showing him kind of the trajectory he should be taking from Brazil to this, this, this other world of, of, uh, of cultured humans. Um, that they wanted him to become. They wanted him to kind of uh, be a sponsor both of their their trips to Brazil and overseas, but they also wanted him to adopt their kinds of values, which were values of culture, of poetry, of religion, of, of, of literature. Well, it's interesting you use two words uh, particularly that come to mind that I think we could sort of key in to get into the, what you do in this new book, uh, that being adventure, and trajectory, and it seems to me that I mean, if you're if you're a fan of um, books like The Cheese and the Worms or The Return of Martin Guerre or The Great Cat Massacre, um, this is really what you do. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is really micro history, and can you tell? Can you talk a little bit about what micro history is, if you like that term? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fond of that term. Um, there, the, Natalie Davis and Carla Ginsburg are, are historians that I admire a great deal. Um, uh, I'm, I'm quite interested in, in looking at, uh, for example, three days or a voyage as a means of exploring um, kind of the, the, the details, the minutia, the, the practices, the techniques, the, the forms of knowledge, or what Wittgenstein called forms of life, by which people kind of make sense of their world. But it, to me, I want kind of an evidentiary base. I want some materiality. I want something to hold on to. And for me, the best possibilities of doing that are to do a really finely focused study on something, and then from that to elaborate into kind of larger, kind of larger narratives about social change and, and uh, transformation. So going from the small to the large. So it could be defined as a two-way street between macro and micro. 
Exactly. The two, the two really interchangeable. We might expand that idea of microhistory. Well, exactly. The microcosm yeah. is kind of a, you know, in, in the microcosm, one has the entire cosmology um, in many ways. So, you know, when you look at Minocchio, for example, and the cheese and the worms, you know, Ginsburg is trying to show kind of a much larger kind of cultural frame of reference. Um, similarly, Martin Guerre, she's not just talking about a guy who came back after he was gone for many years. She's talking about the rise of Protestantism in France, the rise of, uh, um, you know, certain notions of tolerance or, or, or persecution, etc. So much larger narratives are being kind of uh, laid bare by kind of this fine focused, fine, finely grained analysis of the small, of the little, of the, the microcosm, as it were. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about the voyage of thought and sort of get into it um, now that we've kind of set the table about where you've been and and where you're heading of sorts here. Um, no pun intended. Uh, the the voyage of thought. What what is uh, what could you say? Can you encapsulate the argument? What is it that you're interested in looking at in this book? Uh, what I was trying to do in this book, um, well, I was trying to do lots of different things, but of one of the things I was mostly interested in is, is not just following a voyage across the world in the 16th century. In a quite early time period, in 1529, mm-hmm. um, these two brothers sailed to Raoul and, and Jean Parmentier sailed to Sumatra from northern France. But in, in, in recounting that story of a voyage, I was trying to write a, a story about other kinds of voyages that were also taking, taking place. And precisely what we were just speaking about, um, in following this, this, this voyage, which took you know, about a year, and it was a total failure. But in following this voyage, I'm also trying to, to, to take the reader on a voyage in, through the history of science, um, which is to say I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between the early modern and the modern. Uh, a lot of historians ask this kind of question, what's so modern about the early modern? And I'm trying to answer that question by looking at the practices of sailors and poets and, and ship captains and astronomers and astrologers and doctors and how they go about doing what they do as a means of trying to understand um, how they contributed to kind of much, uh, much uh, larger transformations in the way knowledge was thought to work in mm. the 16th and the 17th century. So what's so modern about the early modern? That's what I'm trying to figure out. But not anachronistically. In other words, I'm not trying to read the present into the past. Rather, I'm trying to understand genealogically how the past uh, rhymes with the present. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's, a, that's an interesting way to put it. Well, and let's face it, you are going to, in the schematic, in the, the framework of this book, you're going to, could you talk a little bit about how did you conceive of the outline of this book to tell this cross use cross-disciplinary analysis and talk about the the process that was involved in that. Because I, I found this outline of the book to be a very interesting journey uh, that you're going to take us on. Well, it was it was pretty easy in the sense that, you know, I'm looking at a voyage. And, right. you know, following the voyage from one place to another, you know, automatically takes you into, you know, it means you have to have a large toolbox and you use the toolbox that, you know, you need in order to explain the parts of the voyage that you're trying to explain. So I, I already have a narrative here because, I'm you know, we're starting at point A and we're ending up at, you know, point B and then we're coming back again. So the narrative is there. We have a narrative trajectory to follow. Okay, then we, then we have to understand, you know, the different kinds of things or elements that are kind of involved in a journey like this. So, uh, you know, you have to understand why people wanted to go, for mm-hmm. example. What, what was the reason for, for going to places so far away? 
You know, was it for gold? Was it for spice? Was it for adventure? Was it for God? Uh, was it to find, uh, convert the peoples of the world? Uh, there are all kinds of reasons that people might have had. So, you know, that's where I began, mm. you know, trying to understand uh, why people went from here to there and back and came back again. What was, what was the reason? That's why I started with this idea of information. Mm. So each of the chapters is, is oriented around a word. I began with the word information. You know, what kind of information do you need to go? And what does information mean in the 16th century? Because it meant something very different than it does today. And part of what it meant was um, a reason to go. It wasn't simply about, you know, gathering information that we use today. It wasn't simply about data. It was about giving form to that data, which is, which is to say to give it a reason, to give it some kind of animus or some kind of, um, kind of uh, overarching purpose. And so that's where we began. Uh, then I moved on to, you know, what kind of instruments did one need and how did one go about uh, navigating from one place to another? So I came to expertise. You know, what kind of expertise one does one need to, have a, to make a voyage like this? And so it took me to the question of what is an instrument? How does one use an instrument? How does one sell a story like this? Because in order to, to have a voyage from here to there again, we're talking about, I mean, from our perspective, it's like big science, you know? Right. You can't just build a cyclotron, can you? You need backers, you need a state, you need industry, you need all kinds of people. So what kind of expertise did Jean-Paul Montier need to have in order to um, persuade people uh, who could support his work uh, to give him money, to give him support, to give him ships? So I tried to link his instrumental knowledge, I, you know, how how you navigate instrumentally with an astrolabe, you know, uh, from here to there and back again, to his rhetorical knowledge of how to persuade people that he actually could do that. Right. Because, you know, this is expensive stuff. And, you know, people don't want to invest unless there's some kind of surety. And instruments like astrolabe uh, were one of the means by which you could assure potential investors that, you know, you could get from here to there and back again. And so, you know, this is how I moved along in, in writing the book, you know, and then, then, you know, the next chapter is on translation, and translation quite literally means to move from one place to another. Um, and so we get on the ship and we follow uh, Jean-Paul Montier as he travels from, from northern France to Sumatra. But while we're, you know, traveling with him, while we're being translated across the oceans, we also follow his activities as a translator, because he's a translator of ancient Roman texts, hmm. in particular, the ancient Roman historian Sallust. You know, and then we, we see him that, you know, while he's, you know, translating this text, he's also trying to persuade his men to keep, keep, keep it together, because they are not happy. <laughs> No, they're As not. you can imagine, they are not happy guys, you know, because they are they are lost on the seas without reason. And he's trying to explain to them, you know, well, you know, there we have to have trust in God. So he writes a huge poem about trusting God and trusting your knowledge. And this way you can get there if you, you know, follow your instincts and follow your knowledge as sailors and so on and so forth. I, I don't mean to be a professor and keep professing. So I'll. No, no, no. I want you to describe this because, uh, again, th this this hits at the core of micro history, um, the the simple narrative of he did this, he did this, he did this. I think what you do really well in this book is attempt to get in, as you said in the title, thought, keying in that, getting in the minds of what these individuals were thinking at these different stages, and and also trying to be very explicit with 
using a, a, a means by which to define words. For instance, if we could talk a little bit about this whole voyage, I mean, when I was reading this, it, it seems like such a daunting task. These these two brothers, what they're trying to do, it reminded me of a trip I once took on the highway, taking two different cars and trying, in a pre-cell phone age, trying to communicate with the person who was driving the other car, who really believed he knew where he was going, but he didn't. So could you talk a little bit about the mentality of going on this voyage for these brothers and how they went about sort of gathering the information? Let's kind of start with that, since you've done a nice job of talking about the outline of the book. How, how did they, what were they influenced by at the time? You mentioned history and the Roman past. What else were they influenced by and what were their objectives even before they set out on this voyage? Well, you know, I think these guys were voracious readers. They were they were humanists. I, I we tend to think of ship captains, you know, just in isolation as ship captains. But in fact, uh, Jean Parmentier and his brother and and his navigator Pierre Crignon, they were all poets. Okay, so they wrote this. And what do you mean by that? What do you mean by a poet? They were they were actually uh, members of poetry societies. Okay, poetry kind of was. Uh, it was a means to distinguish oneself as having culture, um, as, as having knowledge, as somebody who could uh, put words together in very particular and arcane and, and abstruse ways. These guys um, identified as identified themselves as poets of what's called Marian verse. They wrote in honor of the Virgin Mary. And the poetry that they wrote was incredibly arcane, really horrible poetry. You don't want to ever read it. It's horrific. Um, it's really stilted. It's very overworked. Um, I don't know if you know if you've read bad poetry. You, know, you can imagine. You know, this is like these guys are so pretentious and so kind of intellectually top heavy that it's. Uh, let's put it this way: they wear their learning very lightly. But you know, they're 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 very concerned with following specific kinds of rules about writing poetry. So kind of the ticket of admission to be able to write this kind of poetry was very high. You needed to be able to write this kind of technical poetry. And once a year they would, you know, display their poetic, poetic skills in um, confraternities. These are kind of um, big societies like fraternities. Um, and they would meet in the church um, in Rouen and another church in Dieppe, and they would read their poetry and uh, they would read it for money and prizes and uh, for honor. And the cream of the cream, the creme de la creme of, of, of Norman society was involved in these poetry societies. So these guys weren't just ship captains, they were poets. And when they were reading their poetry, it's, oftentimes it was about their instruments, it was about their mathematical skills, it was about their cosmology, it was about the new world, but it was always inflected religiously. So that when they wrote about astrolabes, they wrote about astrolabes as ways of pointing to, towards human beings away from the sinful world towards a more perfect world. Um, when they wrote about um, maps, they wrote about how a map was going to lead us from this, the, the sinful, horrible world of the terrestrial, um, a, a terrestrial sin and Satan towards uh, a world that was higher than, higher than the heavens, the terrestrial paradise. So they, they inflected all their poetical works um, and all their knowledge that was, you know, had to do with sailing the ocean seas with religious significance, which gets us, uh, I think, a degree towards why they would go on journeys like this. 
Right. It's not the antithesis that we might think. Like these guys would be, they, they're very interested in the objects associated with it, the material culture that is, that's associated with captaining a ship. Absolutely. It has has multiple meanings to them in the way that they interpret those objects. Well, I think the important thing to take on board in, in, in the present context is that these guys were total capitalists, but they were completely mm. worried about it. You know, they wanted to make money. They wanted spikes. Right. But they were worried about that because, you know, um, that was considered not so great. It was considered uh, derogatory. It was considered something that was uh, perhaps immoral. And so how can, how, how can you transform, you know, this immoral desire for acquisitive gain into something that uh, that's, can be valorized? And one of the ways to do that is to give it a religious inflection. Don't you think, too, that the fact that they're being pushed pretty hard by the Spanish and Portuguese, they're wanting to get in on the game, uh, is sort of pushing them along as well? Absolutely. I, I'm not saying, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, the, that... Um, that religion is taking precedence. It's just one factor among many. And so even their competition with, with Portugal and Spain is put in religious terms. You know, the Spanish and the Portuguese, they argue, have been there for years and they haven't done anything to convert the poor peoples of the world. Whereas the French, when they go, they, they, they do God's work. And so they're very concerned with transforming, you know, their, their, their acquisitive and their colonial desires into, into, into terms that are consonant with their religious um, beliefs, or at least with the well, you, veneer of religious belief. Well, as you mentioned, I mean, theology is the queen of all sciences. I think probably in the 21st century, we forget that about the 16th century, that it was so integral. Um, you may mention that, you know, mathematics is sort of, it's sort of passe. You're kind of a lowbrow person. If you're engaging in this mathematics business, well, especially practical mathematics. Now, practical mathematics had to do with navigation and and uh, and uh, measuring stuff. So, so long as you're you're measuring things in the world, you're you're simply um, you had a kind of expertise in things that were sublunary, some something that was you know less than godly, less than true, because everything in this world, as you know, is 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 somehow tainted by sin and man's position in, it, uh, in, in, this, in this universe. And things uh, that were uh, considered better and higher were um, you know, not touched by this material world. So things like philosophy um, or religion uh, hmm. tried to distinguish between, say, um, the mind or the thought and, and bodies. So, you know, the idea of transforming your, your technical mathematical knowledge into religion was something that was really important for these guys because, mm. you know, it was considered kind of lowbrow, precisely as you put it. It was not considered mm. a great thing to be a mathematician. Much better to be a doctor. Much better still to be a, a natural philosopher. And much better still to be somebody who was, you know, uh, involved with uh, theology. Right. The, uh, the connection, uh, I really like the connection and... Of course, this makes perfect sense after you describe it. The connection, talk a little bit about the connection between the church and a ship. Those two are incredibly linked. Um, well, you know, first, uh, before I do that, I should tell you a little bit about the title, The Voyage of Thought. Because the thought is the name. Well, the name for uh, Jean Pimentier's ship is La Pensée. Um, okay. And his, his patron, the name of his home, is La Pensée. So both of these things mean thought. So the ship he's sailing on is a thought. 
and he's kind of the mind behind the thought. Um, now, what's interesting again is, yeah, the the, the church is another um, is another kind of ship. I mean, when you when you look at um, in the English, when you go to the center part of a church, the part where the, the 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 priest is speaking to the congregation, it's called a nave. In mm-hmm. French, it's called the nef. Okay, um, and we've lost the association with ship, but in French, the word nef means ship. Uh, mm-hmm. Back then, as it does today. So ships and, and, and churches were, were very similar. They were modeled on the same kind of idea. They were both modeled on the notion of a journey. We're going to translate or take the souls of the congregants in the, nef, in the, in the nave, in the ship, to another place, to, to a godly world. Uh, that's the whole idea of a church, is to transport you to the world of the spirit. Um, similarly, you know, that's what a ship does. It's moving you from one place to another. So yeah, there is this, this this interesting kind of interplay between churches and and ships, and uh, I talk about this a lot in my first chapter, actually. Hmm. When uh, one of the characters uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, for our listeners, the, this this patron of these two brothers, he's he's an interesting character. What uh, what did you find out about him? What do we know about him? What's his role in all of this? Well, Jean, in this voyage? Jean Ango is a um, was armateur. In, in other words, he he backed uh, he owned lots of ships. He supplied ships. Uh, he, you know, he stocked them with food and all the supplies that one needed. He was a backer, is what he was. So he backed overseas expeditions um, across the world, and he did this for lots of reasons. Um, you know, he sent ships to Brazil, he sent ships to the Indies, he sent ships to Flanders, and he did this for reasons of trade, of course, but he also did it um, because he was trying to make a lot of money, but he wanted to convert that money into into culture. So he became mm-hmm. a, a big patron of map makers, for example, but also of poets and philosophers and translators. And he wanted to become friends of, you know, high-placed nobles like the king's sister, who he became a close mm-hmm. correspondent with, as well as with the king. You know, Francis first came and visited him in, in his house, right, right. Uh, La Pensée, um, in 1534. Um, so this is somebody who kind of was trying to embrace New World trade as a means of creating social mobility, but also... Um, kind of uh, cultural mobility as well. In other words, he was trying to rise from, you know, relatively kind of a relative backwater like Dieppe and uh, being, you know, not, not, he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't born a baker. He was an armateur. He was, you know, his father mm-hmm. was a rich guy, but he wasn't somebody who was noble. And a lot of these kinds of people like uh, Jean Ango were trying to transform their social status to become noble. And the way to right, become... Right, he's a guy on the make. Yeah, he's, absolutely. That's he's on the make. Totally on yeah. the make. And, and one yeah. of the ways you do that is by becoming cultured and winning money. And then you can buy yourself... Uh, uh, land and you can buy yourself titles and you buy yourself prestige and you know you become a player basically now source material wise for him some difficult propositions would you say absolutely because of because of some of the things that happened after his death yeah all the archives from dieppe ha- were destroyed in the 17th century by an english bombardment so and, we, uh, we and- don't have a we 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 have you know with regards to this voyage we, we have uh, the log that uh, Pierre Quignon, the navigator, wrote, and we have poetry that survives, but we don't have a lot of the information that we would like to have about Dieppe's uh, fundamental relationship 
with the discovery of new lands in the 16th century mm. um, because these were all destroyed. So we have very little. And that really gets us in, you know, talking about uh, the voyage itself, uh, especially with material. Let, let's talk a little bit about, we talked about information. Let's talk a little bit about expertise. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what kind of, what does expertise mean in this time period of the late 1520s, 1530s? What, what does it mean? What does it entail? I, I loved, by the way, the use of, of the definition of monster. I want you to talk a little bit about that, if you could. Well, uh, the idea of monster, I mean, with relation to expertise, was that a, a monster not only referred to um, a freaks of nature, like we think about it now, right. Uh, right. It, it, would, it might refer to all kinds of anomalies, things that are anomalous, things that are singular as opposed to generalizable. In other words, it didn't have to do with things that were called ciencia, um, knowledge, true knowledge. It had to do with things that were singular, that were particular, that, that might stand out um, just for their singularity, but you couldn't call them really knowledge. So uh, a monster, however, could also be a human being who was um, going against the, the, the expectations of the world around them. So somebody who, who, who uh, didn't accept for the, the fact that they were just a mere ship captain and tried to become a, a humanist poet and a theologian. Right, so, right. That's great. That's precisely what these guys were doing. They were becoming, they were monsters in, in that sense. Yeah. They were monsters yeah, that's in the sense that they were trying to, through their expertise, prove their worth to the world. How did, uh, you mentioned earlier the astrolabe. Uh, I want to bring it in because it's a, it's obviously a device that's often used in lectures in primary and secondary schools. It's loads of people talk about it. Um, what What's your take on the astrolabe? How do you use it in this book? What did you find out about it? What did you find out about it you maybe didn't know before you got into this research? Well, I was I was very fortunate when I I, I was a uh, I was employed by Cambridge University years ago to work in the, what's called the Whipple Museum for the History of Science, and I also in that capacity I worked at the Oxford Museum for the History of Science. So I worked around a lot of astrolabes, and the first thing I learned about astrolabes was that there are two fundamentally different kinds of astrolabes. There's a planispheric astrolabe, and there's a there's a marine astrolabe, and they're they're two different animals entirely. So the planispheric astrolabe, um, about for example, which Pierre Clignon wrote a, an extended poem, is an extraordinarily complex piece of machinery that is essentially a computer made of brass that allows you to do various kinds of things like uh, the measure the height of buildings and or stars. Um, it allows you to tell time. It allows you to kind of complete horoscopes, things like that. Um, but entirely impractical. You can't use these things in the field. Um, they're heavy. They're often made of precious materials like gilt brass. Um, they have all kinds of moving parts um, that could easily catch in the wind. So, I mean, so you, you imagine yourself on a ship that's rocking back and forth and weather that's maybe not so great. In other words, there's, there are lots of clouds in the sky. Um, it's difficult to see stars and, and even sometimes the sun. So how would you take a measurement of these things that are, you know, that's heavy, that's made of precious material, that's large, that catches the wind, and that you're balancing from your thumb? It's next to impossible. So around the turn of the century, we don't know when they first came about, but early in the 16th century, and they they accompanied the the, the, the first voyages across the Atlantic, um, they developed, or de- there were developed, uh, things called mariner's astrolabes, which were these stripped-down instruments, were, which were essentially 
a um, a ring, which was a, which was surrounded by a degree scale um, and a piece that swiveled on top of it that one could use to sight the sun. And what one would do is one would sight the sun and then write off the degree. Um, the degree that was, uh, you know, parallel to it or underneath it. And then you'd go to a book of declination tables and you could figure out, you know, basically latitude. You know, once you have latitude, you could, you could coast. Now, longitude's another animal entirely because you can't figure it out um, without being able to tell time on a ship. And so you could only guess. Um, there, there were various methods that people claimed to use, the lunar distance methods, for example. These things were probably not used. So one could figure out latitude. With latitude, you could you could you could do all kinds of different things, but mostly you could coast. You know, you know, you know your you know your place in one side, and you you know you you take your compass and you set a you set a, a rum line, and then you follow it. Um, but you won't know your longitude. You won't know it at all. Right. You could guess your longitude though, and that. That was another. That was something that was quite complex and quite difficult to do. And you could just maybe approximate that longitude um, through various um, instrumental and practical means. Usually using lots of different sailors, measuring, trying to measure the speed of the ship, and right. um, and you know guessing, you know guessing well. But you know, I don't know if you you know it, it's if you're a practical human, you know that you don't read a book to learn how to hammer a nail. You have to right. hammer a nail. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, a sailor, I don't know if you've ever sailed, uh, Nathan, but sometimes you put, yeah. your, you put your thumb up in the air and you feel where the wind is going. Yeah. Or, you know, it's like when you're driving yes. your car and you don't realize that you've been playing with the radio for 20 minutes. And you, haven't, right. you don't realize exactly where you are, and, and, but you've managed to navigate yourself without thinking. Or you hear something, you know, while you're driving and you think, oh, there's something wrong with my car. I can feel it. I can't exactly put my well, finger yeah. on it, but there's something there. That touches on replication, which is the last chapter of your book. Hey, you got to do it more and more. And the more and more you do it, the better you'll be at it. Yeah. And a lot of it is mm-hmm. tacit knowledge. You know, you, you things yeah. you learn by doing. And, uh, you know, it's like you, you, you feel the ship. You know, you feel its rock. You feel the, right. you know, you feel the, the current. You feel the wind. And that gives you a sense of where you are. But that's maybe not going to convince your crew that you know what the hell you're doing. And, and let's talk about that crew. Let's, let's discuss that a bit on both these ships. I mean, what, what kinds of, you mentioned this briefly earlier, I mean, what kinds of confidences did this crew have in its, in its captain, in its leadership? Would you say? Well, what did you find? You know, in the first instance, I think we have to we have to relate it to kind of uh, long durée um, social mm-hmm. notions of social hierarchy. You know, the captain is the head; he's the brain; he's he's got the highest status; he knows how to read. I mean, this is clearly an impressive thing for most most uh, lay people. Most sailors, mm-hmm. most people who don't know how to read, these were these guys could read. They were translating Latin text into French. They could use these abstruse instruments. They had obviously done a lot of reading. Um, so we can rely a little bit on kind of uh, terrestrial, should we say, or land-based social hierarchies. But you know that will only get you so far before the crew right. starts grumbling and getting quite angry because you know, look at you're on a rickety ship. And these things are rickety, and you're sailing across the world, across unknown seas. Um, your food is is probably filled with worms. There are rats, you know, running around you, and the water is 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 rancid. And scurvy. Men are dying around you of scurvy, mm-hmm. and a lot of pain. 
Uh, the, the sun is probably unrelenting, and the natives could be quite hostile. Um, and so you can imagine that these guys were getting a little uh, scared, frustrated, tired, angry, etc. You you name it. And a mutiny was probably just around the corner at any given time. So land-based social hierarchy will only take you so far. Then you know you need other tricks in your in your in your your box of tools. And what does that mean to be a new man of France? How how does that help? Uh, Pamatier keep this sort of ship of sail moving in the direction right. of Sumatra. Well, we know that he's, uh, you know, he's a poet, for example. Um, this is right. what part of being a new man is about, is showing uh, your your worth through cult, your cultural competencies, your ability to speak and, and write in a language right. that's, uh, you know, extraordinarily difficult and not everybody can do. Even nobles, you know, couldn't write like this generally. This is, right. you know, this is a hard-won kind of knowledge. And, you know, as Bacon tells us later on, you know, knowledge is power. And, is. and rhetorically speaking, you know, writing a poem and trying to persuade his, his men to continue on with their voyage by writing a poem about um, how their knowledge is something that's really worthwhile and it's linked to God's order of the universe and that they should depend on their knowledge and his guidance um, to kind of sail across the world to, you know, what God is clearly has in mind for them, which is a better, a better place, you know, a place filled with spice and gold. Um, so hmm. part, of, part of being a new man is being able to persuade them uh, of that um, through rhetorical means of poetry. But it also has to do with the performance. I mean, think, think about it. You know, you're, you're every day at 12 o'clock when the sun is at its highest position, Pierre Cunion goes out there and pulls out his astrolabe, pulls out his declination tables, pulls out his compass, pulls out all these objects, which must seem to most of these members of the crew as quite magical instruments, and fiddle around with them, you know? And uh, this had to be, you know, this is like the, the, you know, you trust the doctor in the white coat, not, you know, in the Tommy Bahama shirt. You know, it's... Or the person behind the wheel of the car to know that they know how to shift gears. Mm -hmm. They know how to drive it. They know where the blinker is. Exactly. So they have to show a a certain level of competence, or at least the illusion of competence. But there's also the sense in, you know, which uh, a lot of this, I argue, a lot of this kind of knowledge was distributed. In other words, they relied upon their men as well. So Hmm. what they they did is they they created what I call kind of a backup system of uh, distributed knowledge, which takes, uh, say, their their navigational practices and distributes distributes it across the action of a multiplicity of men and the crew, everyone acting in concert. The whole idea Hmm. here is they, they, you you know, when you're on a ship, um, you have to act together. Um, Rather it, like an orchestra, it has to be choreographed. It has to be. Yeah. It has to be orchestrated. And if you know one or one person goes off and doesn't doesn't do the pumping when he's supposed to, or doesn't move the sail when he's supposed to, things go awry. Um, and why did they go awry? You mentioned some mutinous types of of commentary and and such. What what caused things to fall apart? as far as thinking about something like mutiny well before they even got to Sumatra. Well, I mean, uh, men start dropping dead. That, that could, that could definitely put a, a crimp in your plans, right? <laughs> you know? That's uh, that, that sounds pretty bad to me. Yeah, it does. And this is one of the reasons that, um, you know, people start uh, dropping dead and not, not just dropping dead, they're dropping dead in a very painful way that takes weeks. 
um, right. they're dying agonizing. agonizing death. And this is one of the reasons that Parmentier relies on not just rhetoric but and performance of his his skills as a navigator, but also uh, as a dissector. He dissects several, yes. two of his men on board the ship in front of their their peers, in front of their you know the, their, their fellow crew members. Um, and why did he do that? Well, What's the reason behind that? Do you think the, the reason he said the reason that was stated in the log was to find out why they died. Very specifically. But, you know, when we think about it as historians and we look at why he would do this in front of all the members, you know, having members of the crew dissected in front of other members of the crew has to be, you know, something that was considered extraordinarily violent. Absolutely. And so, I mean, it would probably scare the men to death, I would think. Well, exactly. And so part of my argument is this is one of the rhetorical strategies that he utilizes, you know, cutting his mm-hmm. men open. Um, is, you know, after they die, is a means of persuading the ones that are still living that they should listen to their captain. Absolutely. What, uh, I want to be able to get to this uh, in the time we've got left. What what uh, what happened in Sumatra? Can you give us a, sort of a, a tour through that encounter or the encounters that occurred there, the scale, uh, the use of confidence? Can we talk a little bit about those sections about what you'd like to highlight. Right. This is quite complicated. Uh, what I try to do in the book is argue that there's a symmetry between creating confidence with nature and creating confidence with others. So um, the very kind of elaborate techniques that one would use to turn um, ho- the hostile forces of nature into allies that would help you sail from here to there and back again um, were not dissimilar from the kinds of balance one would try to create with um, people that you meet in, in unknown lands. When you don't know who you're talking to, how do you know whether to trust them or not? And uh, so how do you build what we would call a metrology or a means by which we could create a balance between mm-hmm. them and us, such as, you know, you know, they're confident that we're not going to overpower them and vice versa. Um, they kept singing the song France Tiku and Tiku France. Tiku yes. was the name of the town that they arrived in when they got to Sumatra. Now, the problem was that the French thought they were innately superior because they were French. And one might argue that the French still think this today, um, you know, that they have a superiority complex. Um, probably true. Um, but they were by no means superior either as uh, culturally or uh, commercially than the people of Sumatra, who were incredibly sophisticated, who had been dealing um, um, with in elaborate commercial networks for, you know, a millennia already. Sure, um, sure. So, they- Engaged with the Chinese, they've the Malay Peninsula, all those environs. Exactly. So, so. What, what kind of means could they could be used to create some kind of uh, pathway to being able to communicate with one another? And I argue that uh, the first thing they do is they trade hostages. Right. Um, they, they and trade. how well does that work out? Well, I mean, they, they trade pledges, um, and it works out not so well, actually, because uh, <laughs> right. you know, in, the, in the first instance, it was a means by which they could create kind of a balance between them and us, you know, by, by, exchanging, by exchanging hostages. Um, but it also entails kind of, you know, how we, how we understand how we weigh things, for example. Right. How, do you, how, do you, how do you deal with these people that we, you know, you've never encountered before and their styles of measurement or their kinds of money um, or their kinds of goods you know, um, when you're not used to dealing with them? 
I mean, it's a, it's a real problem. So it's, it's, a, it's a serious problem, especially like how do you explain scales mm-hmm. and how do the scales work and what you're going to put on one side of the scale is the other. So um, what we find in, with this, in this particular story is Jean Parmentier, he arrives and he rents mm-hmm. a house and he puts all his goods inside the house and then he meets with the, 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 uh, the harbor master who's called the Chabandere of the Menancabao people in, 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 in western central Sumatra and in, they go into this house and we don't, really, we, don't have a, we don't have a transcript of what happened but we just know that they tried to negotiate weights and measures in other words they tried to measure determine what scale was what the balance yeah. was and they, it completely fell apart they, they got into a huge fight um, Parmentier didn't trust anything the Chabandere said Chabandere didn't trust anything the French had to say and everything just fell apart from there basically it went to pieces very rapidly. What? Um, how? How did everything end with this voyage? Can you talk a little bit about that? Talk about the process too, um, because there's a particular source I'd kind of like you to talk about. With this, that you found a, a wonderful letter from an 80 year old sailor. Um, can you talk a little bit about the end and how things turned out? Uh, uh, because this was a this was a failed voyage. Absolutely. So so the end, it's, it's, a little, it's, a little, it's complicated because we have different kinds of possibilities. Well, we'll just go for the easiest one, I guess. So, okay, let's do that. Well, what, what happens essentially is all relations between the Tikuans, the people of Sumatra, and the French fall apart. Um, the French end up declaring war, and then the narrative comes to an end, uh, kind of a, a, an abrupt end. Um, however, we find this letter. A guy named uh, Guillaume Plastrier wrote a letter when he was 80, and he describes the four days that were missing, essentially, from the account from the log mm. of Pierre Quignon. And he describes, Plastrier in the letter describes um, what actually happens after war was declared. What happens is Parmentier executes his hostages. He retakes mm. some hostages, he executes them. And I argue, essentially, that... The relationships between the French and the Menancabao, the people of Sumatra, was already over. And Parmentier executed these men, these, these Menancabao hostages, the Sumatran hostages, in order to persuade his own men in his own authority. Yeah. Um, so having done that, he promptly died. Another way to motivate, another way to motivate them. Exactly. That's exactly what I would say. He used his poetry. He used the dissections. He probably used the lash. Um, but he also executed these hostages as a means of persuading his own men because he wasn't going to persuade um, the Menachabal. That was that was that relationship was already dead. Um, so what's intriguing here is the fact that he dies. So he and his brother both die within a few days of each other, promptly right after right after this. Of you know we don't know we don't know how they died. Maybe they were poisoned. Maybe their own crew killed them because they were much hated. Or they died of um, any number of diseases because, you know, this is what happens when you go to places that you're, you know, you meet viruses that you weren't planning on meeting. You got um, cultural exchange is just one thing that happens it is, in many. It is dangerous business. So they both die and, uh, and the ship comes back under a new leader. And Pierre Quignon tries to rehabilitate them by writing poetry and mm. uh, doesn't work so well. And they're more or less forgotten. Um However, I argue that the, the voyage is replicated after a certain fashion because, you know, knowledge isn't necessarily written down. 
it's often tacit. And right. so we, you know, the knowledge continues in, in, in one way or another, whether on maps, um, which, uh, which, which integrate some of the, the information that they brought back, or in the tacit knowledge of sailors um, or pirates, uh, etc. So the voyage lives on in a variety of different ways. Uh, how did you find that 80-year-old sailor's letter? Was that, was that a find in, in a, a certain way, or did you already know about it before this? No, that was, that was published by the 19th century scholar who actually discovered um, the original um, manuscript, actually a 17th century mm. copy of the, the log of Pierre Clignon, and he, okay. found, he found this letter. Okay, and then you, in turn, learned about it through your research. Exactly. I got you. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it seemed like a fascinating find for those, again, talking about days, Mm -hmm. days in which there's a part of the puzzle totally missing. Uh, Wanted wanted to mention that. Well, you know, Um, the thing I think that's interesting in this this part of the story is the way that, uh, well, when when they're in Sumatra, they named Parmonte named uh, various islands, um, mm-hmm. and those names disappeared. Um, but right. one of those islands was called Parmontier, and suddenly that name reappeared uh, fifty years later on a map. Um, in, in strange, yeah. And in, in, how do you in, explain that? Well, I, what it, it appeared on a map very far from Sumatra. It actually appear, appeared in what was, you know, thought to be the Northwest Passage above, you know, present-day Canada. And, and mm-hmm. so it appeared there. And yeah, I, I think it, it appears there because there was a great search in, at the, you know, in the 16th century and the 17th century for a Northwest Passage to places like Sumatra and the Spice Islands. And they transposed the name of Parmentier um, from the area around Sumatra to the area above Canada because they thought that's how we were going to get back to Sumatra. Right. So and was, he was the first. Yeah, yeah. He, so, he was among the first. I mean, the Portuguese had yeah, been well. They had been trading right. for years. Um, among the first of the French. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The, yeah. The, the French didn't actually make it back. But that, that name lived on for quite a long time, for for, right. for years. Even though his the biography of him, the story of him, was essentially lost for a couple hundred years. Yep. Would you say that? I would, I would say he, was, he, he became a pretty obscure figure for many years until the 19th century when he right. found his, you know, the primary sources were discovered and valorized as a means of pushing... French colonial efforts in in the world, basically, yeah. in in terms of the European competition for various colonies. So he's resurrected for for the precisely those reasons. I want to uh, before we close, uh, want to ask a, a couple more questions about sources. Um, are there some other things too uh, favorite sources that you came across um, that you particularly were really excited about? Uh, in, a, in analyzing some things that you didn't expect that you'd come across in this project? Well, I, I think the, the, the poetry is, I mean, I, I don't want to recommend anybody read this poetry, but it, <laughs> okay. it, you're it, definitely it's not endorsing it. Um, but, <laughs> you know, reading, reading that poetry closely, because, you know, I am a micro historian and I, and, and reading the log and the poetry together um, mm. was what took me to places that I wouldn't expect. But the, the sources, I think that, make this book more original are early modern dictionaries um, mm. and focusing on things like Hotgrave's Dictionary of French and English. 
um, and uh, Nico's dictionary or the, the dictionary of the Academy Francaise. Uh, there are all kinds of you know, dictionaries that are really obscure to us today, which give us an idea um, that you know, words aren't simply about you know, dictionary definitions. They're about practice and, and, and how those, those forms of life and practices are, are transposed into various kind of notions of meaning, meanings that have often been lost to us today. Yeah, that or they're not interpreted in the same way, kind of like we were talking about with monster. Exactly. I mean, and to bring that full circle, the notion of expertise is something that you know really involved notions of cunning. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we we think of you know, you know, I don't know if you read any French or know any French, but the word connaissance, for example, mm-hmm. you know. But when you think of connaissance, uh, you know, you can think of uh, you know the idea of cunning. That goes mm-hmm. along with it, um, and you know we can think about the 19th century confidence man, of course, the so, you know, advertisements in the 20th century. Right, you know, so I don't want to be yeah. anachronistic and attribute something from the 19th century to the 16th, but you know, in the 16th century, if we look at notions of expertise, there was clearly there were ideas of uh, cunning involved here and sleight of hand and schemes and things like that. So a lot of suspicion was involved. As a historian, though, who's interested in the evolution of thought, I mean, it's not anachronistic to see those arcs, those trajectories, exactly. those those adventures in interpretation that you went through. This was a this is a true adventure on so many different levels. Uh, before we wrap up, I always like to do this because it's it's telling of guests. Are, are you willing to undergo some rapid fire? And answer some quick questions. I am, but it's it's late for me. But I'll try. That's okay. That's okay. You won't be too embarrassed. Trust me, Michael. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's have some answers here. Here's the first rapid fire one. Uh, most impactful scientific endeavor. Uh, Copernicus. <laughs> As he chuckles. Uh, who's a bigger scoundrel, Jean Fleury or Francis Drake? Uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> a better pirate. Who's a better pirate? Uh, Jean Fleury is a pretty good pri- pirate, I think. He's a, he's a pretty good one. Do you like him better than Drake? Uh, no, I don't. Drake is really interesting. Um, okay. Easier to read, too, for me. Interesting. Okay. Um, best French cathedral. Best French cathedral. I like the Rouen Cathedral quite a lot. Really? Okay. Well, just, right. just because it's uh, not as crowded as, as some of the other ones. Interesting. That that makes sense. Okay. Uh, best part of Southern California. Uh, best part of Southern California, uh, L.A., Los Angeles. It is Southern okay. California. Worst part. Um, I, I have no idea because I don't go to those places. Okay. All right. That's good. <laughs> All right. This is this is this is good. All right. Most uh, overused word in the English language. Huh. <laughs> Excellent. Favorite word in the English language. Really. Oh, really. Totally? That's it? Dude. Totally. Totally, dude. Okay. All right. Most uh, fun word to pronounce? Controversy. Oh, my goodness. You have to use the English English pronunciation. Okay. Uh, Two left, and then I'll let you off the old hook here. Who's a better boss? Jean, I may be mispronouncing it. Jean Argo? Argo. Michael Argo? Mm -hmm. or, Or Michael Corleone? Uh, Michael Corleone. Really? Why? You know what to expect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, best modern actor to portray Ongo in a big budget Hollywood film. Oh God, good question. Uh, who would you Who would you get to play him? I would think De Niro. 
How about in a low-budget film? Uh, I'm trying to think of the guy on Baywatch. Ah, the, like Hasselhoff. <laughs> there you go. Michael, it's it's been a true pleasure. My my guest today uh, has been Michael Wintrop. He's uh, the professor of rhetoric at the University of California, Berkeley. You should go out and check out his new book, The Voyage of Thought, Navigating Knowledge Across the 16th Century World. I, I thought this was just, uh, by the way, Michael, a fabulous uh sort of leading that you did of wonder and mystery. Uh, I enjoyed reading this, and I and I hope my listeners will, too. Check it out. And also, A Savage Mirror, Power, Identity, and Knowledge in Early Modern France. Thanks for coming on the program today, Michael. Thank you for having me, Nathan. It's been great. Okay. Well, good deal. Thank you. And uh, join us next month for another edition of New Books in Science, and we'll see you then. Take care. Take care. <laughs>